Amen. Thank you, Patty. What a what a delight it is uh, to take truths from God's royal treasury and and put music to them, and the application and the principles that are found, and we get to uh, be ministered to and ministered to the Lord, uh, not just in His Word spoken, but also in His Word sung. And I appreciate the vibrant time of worship that we had this morning, and it's good to see everybody this morning. I want to just start out with saying how grateful and humbled uh, I am and my family for Pastor's appreciation last week. I think Kevin's not here, but he, he probably did the right thing of showering us and then just the service is over. Because I, I was wanting to get up and, you know, preach another little mini-sermon, but I, it was late and so forth. But uh, you guys were so generous and the gifts were so creative. Thank you so much. It just is so humbling. And we're set for a good a good while. We have lots of gift cards, and we use those to for date nights and things like that. Even to Lowe's, whether it's a restaurant, to Lowe's, whatever. Uh, we they they become they transforms them transform themselves into time together with my wife. So thank you so much. Glory to God for your generosity. And um, I am a little bit sore up here this morning because I had, I went to a jujitsu tournament yesterday and uh oh no i didn't compete i um i just watched the competitors and as i watched um nevin and lance and hunter and noah lassar just noah noah and pate did i miss anybody there's a few others that aren't in this church as i watched them roll and grapple and whoop up on their opponents my muscles were all tense it's kind of trying to get in there and submit, do some submissions of my own. And so I have a few aches and pains that I don't usually have. But that was a real treat uh, that I got to experience yesterday. Those guys are tough. And led by none other than Mr. Sam Moss, who coaches them and encourages them and mentors them on the mat and in the faith. Uses it for the glory of God. So we have um, a topic this morning. Scripture brings it up. You can't read Scripture without coming upon this topic. You can't live life without encountering this topic, and that is of suffering. The Apostle Paul in this second book of Corinthians is really sharing his heart like in no other book, and it becomes almost autobiographical. And he's sharing his life. He's sharing his... his, his um, trials, his triumphs, for the glory of God. He thinks that going into some details will actually benefit the church for the glory of God. And I think, of course, if it benefits the saints in Corinth, it can't help but to benefit the saints of New, Co- New Covenant Fellowship. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7-18, through 18. preached a little bit on this last week. Um, And I will preach again on it next Sunday and finish this section. But I'm just looking at this very important topic of suffering, what it means, what do we do with it, you know, what do you do when life hurts? I think that might be a title of a book or something, because we all experience some form of suffering and pain. So I want to look at it from different angles to equip us to endure it in the right way for the glory of God. I'm going to go ahead and read these verses this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And with that passage, you see the incredible uniqueness of the terrible acts of suffering. Christianity has a very unique uh, view or perspective on what it means to suffer and the purpose of suffering. And we looked last time, well, first of all, why do we even have to talk about it? Because as we saw last time, suffering is universal. There's not a place that you can go in this world that we live in, even in space, go ahead and take take the space flight that they have these days. If you got the money for it, take it. Even in space, there's nowhere that you can go to escape suffering. North, south, east, west. Every culture, every people group, it's universal. And it's also indiscriminate. And that's what makes it so difficult to understand sometimes is because not only can you not escape it geographically, but... You can't escape it no matter what society you live in, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are. Nobody escapes. You can't buy your way out of it. Uh, you can't educate your way out of it. Uh, you can't exercise your way out of it. It's just something that is a part of our lives and our world. And because it's universal and because it's indiscriminate, we have to know what we're going to do with it. And it's good to have some kind of plan and understanding with suffering, especially as believers. So that's why I'm taking some time to look at this. And we looked at some different plans uh, that the world offers, so to speak, some options. Well, what do we do with it? How do, what place does suffering have? And um, we looked last time at, say, the secular plan, and that is people that do not believe in uh, any 
not just God, but in any supernatural other being. They believe that we live in a closed universe of matter. We're just matter. We're just molecules flying around, pinging in the, into each other, and that's what makes life what it is. And so, therefore, the plan to suffer is, look, just grit and bear it because there's nothing you can do about it. It's the world we live in. And it doesn't have any meaning or purpose. It's random because meaning and purpose means that there's a creator or there's some higher being, uh, intelligent design, and we don't believe, we can't believe in that if this is all there is. So there's no really reason or there's no hope. And most of the time, the advice you get from people with this is, you know, just wish for the best, hope for the best. Now, wishing for the best doesn't really do you any good because there's nothing out there to wish to but we have to give you something to go with and what happens is the secular plan if you break it down and i'm not making fun of these plans i'm just look trying to look at these things intellectually and realistically if you break it down you have a plan that really the world can't live with because it's too cold it's dark it's meaningless and as human beings we need purpose and meaning and so even some of the advice that that plan gives us, it leaves us empty and cold. What are we going to do that? And, and really, it does not fit reality. And then I took another plan, um, and there's lots of them out there, but I didn't want to spend a lot of time on it. But these are things that we rub shoulders with in our culture. We looked at the neat, what I call the New Age plan, you know, Buddhism and things, and the idea is that it actually acknowledges suffering, which is good. It says, yes, suffering is real, and we can do something about it, whereas secular plan says nothing we can do about it. There's no victory. You can't overcome it. You just have to press on with it. And they said, no, you can do something about it, but then they look at suffering and say that suffering is the result of you not getting what you want. You have desires, you have cravings, and when you don't get those those wishes, those cravings, then you feel unsatisfied, and that's the that's what causes the suffering in your life. So there's this gap between what you really want will make you happy and whole and what you can get. Now, the answer to that gets into the new agey stuff of you know meditation and the different steps that you take to overcome that but the answer is that hey if we just empty ourselves of any desire if we don't want anything we don't have any particular idea how life should go for us then i can't get hurt i can't suffer and so it's an entire plan on how to avoid cravings and desires and so forth in order to avoid suffering that eventually leads you to escape suffering so well, if you will, that you, you have to deny reality. You wind up saying, actually, suffering isn't real. I'm not even real. It's all just an illusion. And then you reach nirvana. And that's the place where you delivered yourself from suffering, but actually you delivered yourself from even your own existence because it turned out to just be an illusion. I know it's confusing, but these are plans out there. So what do we do with suffering? Can we escape it like that? How, how do we acknowledge this? Uh, do, do we try to rid ourselves from desires? Is it, wrong to, is it wrong to hurt because we don't get what we want? Is it wrong to hurt for others that we see who suffer or even as we suffer ourselves? And I would venture to say that any 
plan of suffering outside of what we find in God's truth is not going to fit reality. It won't fit a believer's reality. It won't fit an unbeliever's reality. And by the way, I also threw in materialism just because that's something that uh, we're big on here in America, the Western culture. And that's the idea that, yes, suffering is real, um, but my plan to alleviate it as much as possible is to satiate myself with as many good things, indulgences, luxuries. I'll just buy, I'll shop, I'll, I'll drive nice, I'll whatever. And that really douses the pain of suffering. That doesn't fit reality either. That's more of an avoidance. But God's word is true. And truth can simply be defined as reality. It's what you see. It's what we have to work with. It's who we are. It's who God is. It's all of the elements of creation. This is reality, and we live in it. And fortunately, God's truth has much to say about the world that we live in and suffering. It doesn't mean that God gives us all the answers to suffering. There's so many things in a world that remain mysterious that only God knows, at least for now. There will be a time when I'm Sure, in heaven, that, that light bulbs will go off like crazy and we'll be able to see why things happen the way, the way they did. But I don't think that in understanding suffering that God means for us to understand every little splinter that we get in life. Oh, there's a spiritual reason for this and a spiritual reason for that. There are deep spiritual reasons for it, but we don't always get all of those. And so I, I don't know that, that that's God's intent for um, giving us the reason or the purpose for suffering is to, to say, well, it could be A and it could be C and it could be uh, D, but we, don't, we just don't always know the exact reason. But we do know that God is all wise. He's omnipotent and he, He's a master that we can trust, whether He gives us answers or not. But He does not leave us without hope does not leave us without hope. He does not leave us without desires. He does not leave us without delight. And so he, he invades our lives with purpose and perspective and truth. And he guides us and he shepherds us and he shows us the ways and the paths through our tough times. The Apostle Paul listed a grueling description of suffering that he called light and momentary, that I would not title it like that. And yet he says, we did not lose heart. Me and my team, we didn't lose heart. How is that possible? How can you go through that kind of suffering experience, this mental, psychological, physical, spiritual suffering, and say, we did not lose heart? There's got to be something to that. So that's what we're going to look at today, and we've been looking at it. We'll look at it next time. And by the way, so I think about this plan, the different plans of suffering. When I think about uh, the new age and it's, it's kind of meditating your way out of any desires so that you don't have any wants. You know, the part of the, the Christian life is being okay with not getting what you want. Like, it's not a sin to not get what you want. And sometimes even our own culture 
were nonplussed in this idea. Well, well why did that not happen the, the way my heart wanted it to happen? And the Christian answer to that is it's not meant to be. There are things that are not meant to be in this lifetime. And it's okay not to have a desire fulfilled. So just for simplistic, uh, uh, simplicity's sake, the first step, I guess you'd say, to Christian suffering is looking at how suffering and glory are connected. For the Christian plan, you can't disconnect these two things. Suffering and glory, they absolutely go hand in hand. It's coupled. So the Apostle Paul says in 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Look at the connection. Suffering, it turns out, is, is a form of preparation. And not just preparation for something worse to come. Look, it's going to get even worse in the afterlife, so we better equip you the best we can so you can even endure that. This is equipping for something that is so good, it's beyond explanation. It's beyond comparison between good and evil, right and wrong. He's already told us, back in chapter 3, talking about uh, glory, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The glory has everything to do with the Christian plan. And so we learned in that text that by gazing at the glory of God and understanding His character, it transforms our character. It it enables us to be more like Christ. That's our new paradigm. It's our new goal in living is to be more and more like Christ, and as we gaze at that beautiful character, that splendor, and we saw in the Old Testament that the word glory has to do with this weightiness of presence. Like you know, it's when you know you're in the presence of greatness. And then the New Testament adds to it the idea of beauty and splendor. So you have this this undeniable presence that's majestic, it's beautiful, it's heavy, it's glorious because that's God's character. He's beautiful in His holiness. He's beautiful in His goodness. He's beautiful. He's not just powerful. He's beautifully powerful. It's the whole off-the-charts package of majesty. And so suffering is to prepare us for this weight of glory. And suffering is God-given. Suffering is God-given. It's within His scope. It's within His mastery. It's under His Lordship. And it is intended to prepare us for something so incredible that we're apparently not yet prepared for it. Suffering plays a part in that. Suffering digs things up in us that need to be removed for our own good, for God's glory. Suffering imparts things into us that were not there for our good and for God's glory. Where there was great loss in suffering in the Christian plan, you can count on great gain. See, they're coupled. The suffering and the glory, it's coupled. They're linked together in this life. And so, mysteriously, providentially, we always gain more then we lose. So how do we, if we just for a second think about the suffering in our lives, how do we frame it? What is our story? 
Uh, do we run off with different plans? Do we run off with fleshly perspectives? Or are we purposing to frame our lives according to the big story, the meta-narrative of God and the glory of Christ? In Romans 8.18, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So you see, when he, when he suffers and when he <clears throat> counsels others in their suffering, he's not denying that it's not real. Suffering is very real. Christ doesn't deny. God doesn't deny it. <clears throat> we looked at last week the passage in Genesis where the Lord met Hagar, who had removed herself from suffering. With She's single. She's pregnant. And he says, yes, I've heard your suffering. It's real. Now return to your suffering. So Christianity doesn't deny it or or wish it away. The beauty of the Christian plan is that without eliminating the severity of suffering, it shows us that it prepares us for something better. Fully acknowledging this pain. Preparing us uniquely for our eternal dwelling and I hope you see that there's no other plan that offers this there's no other way of life that can make sense out of the good and the bad the times of health and the times of suffering as it all goes into this package of serving God's purpose no suffering no glory so we want to see suffering as one of the most important processes of our Christian pilgrimage. And a lot of times, we want to just put all of life, including our Christian pilgrimage, on hold until life gets back like we think it ought to be. And that's not the Christian plan of suffering. It's a preparation. It's not stop and then go, stop and then go. It's a fluid process so the opposite of glory is this heaviness this this undeniable unmistakable presence of beauty and splendor if you're not a glorious being if you have no glory to you in that sense then you would be weightless you would be like a wisp you'd be like anything would blow you out you'd barely even be noticed I didn't even know you were in the room Nobody could hear your voice. You would speak very faintly. You have no presence to yourself. There's no, there's no substance to yourself. Little presence. You know, glory is Im, immovable. It's, it's rooted deep. You know, Scripture, we build on the rock because the rock is immovable. You can't do anything with it. It's just there. You either climb over it, walk around it, or embrace it or whatever. It's just there. And there's a sense, I think the Apostle Paul teaches us and and Scripture teaches us that suffering is making us more. Suffering is making us more substantial of of the being that we're supposed to be. it's, It's building our character. It's adding structure, the framework to who God wants us to be. Suffering plays that important part. It's giving us more of a presence. It's it's rooting us deeper into the glory of God so that we can have 
a bigger impact on others so that we can be more alert to the things of God's kingdom and less alert to the, all the worldly fads that we're faced with. So it's very, very important in this preparation and even honing our spiritual senses to the things of God. Suffering enables us to see what's really important. Talk to somebody whose life has been threatened. Maybe they were on their deathbed. And they were given a second chance, so to speak. Ask, well, what, what was running through your head? Believer or non-believer, what was running through your head? And you will see that the, what they long for is the important things of life. That's what they will miss the most at this threatening thought of being taken out of this world. You're not going to go out of this world thinking, oh, no, I'm going to miss a day of work. Ah, what? I love sitting behind the computer and hitting those keys. I'm going to miss it so much. You're going to be thinking about your wives, your kids, your brother, your sister, things that you love, things that are important to you. What really matters in this life? Suffering has a way appealing the things that don't really matter, that you actually can do without, but you thought you couldn't. I think about Elizabeth Elliot. You know, I went, she, she was a missionary, and I went through this time in my Christian life where I couldn't get enough of her devotions and her way of looking at life. And one of the things I loved about it is because she had this unique way of looking at life because she had suffered so much. And I think many of you probably know the story. She was newly married to her husband, Jim. They went out on the mission field to minister to the uh, Aka Indians. And Jim and his team, the other guys, they went. And uh, these Indians um, were not the most trustworthy tribe, talking about culture. There's good cultures and bad cultures. Well, uh, they would trick you and so forth and kill you. And so that's what happened to Jim and his, and his team. They were, they were murdered. And then you have, so Elizabeth, she, Elliot, she really shares how things were shaken. Her view of God, her view of life, her view of family. Now, she's a single mom. But what, now what do I do with life? I mean, I was serving God and these things were taking care of me. So now what do I do with life? And she speaks with such presence and, and authority uh, and, and substance because... She, she didn't stop loving God. She didn't stop serving God. She wound up going right back out to the mission field to continue the ministry of reaching the lost. Shout it from the mountains, we sang this morning. And lo and behold, there were those, after much labors, that gave their lives to Christ. And that became a Christian culture. See, that, that added so much substance to her testimony. I couldn't wait to hear more of what she said. So when suffering comes, you, you don't, we don't stop loving God. We don't put that on hold. We don't put our pursuit of knowing God on hold. We don't put, we do whatever we can to serve God. I mean, how many prayers have been prayed? Because that's all somebody could do as a believer. It's bedridden. It's all I can do. I can pray. How many prayers have been prayed just from a bed with people immovable? So we don't stop serving God or loving God. There's still more God to be known. And I would say even highlighted in ways that we cannot know without 
suffering. So we don't want to be weightless or gloryless, if you will, and just get blown away by it. And I see people in this world, suffering comes away. They are blown away. They never recover. Never recover from some kind of suffering or tragedy. It's not God's intent for us to stay there. It's a place. It's a season. And yes, there is an end to it. Don't stop loving. Don't stop giving. Don't stop serving. Timothy Keller says, suffering can kill you. It can destroy you. It can make you dehumanized. It can make you bitter. It can make you a bad person. It can hurt you badly. It can twist you. But without any suffering, you can't become real. You can't become deep. You can't become insightful. You can't become wise. You can't get glory. So, as hard as it is, What God is saying to us is that this is building substance. This is making you... I am preparing you for more and more weight, for more and more enjoyment. These are the truths that we need to fill our heads with instead of the things that often naturally come to us, which would be doom and gloom. So we want to focus on the big picture that suffering actually, in some mysterious way, is making us more alive. Suffering has a place. I want to read something uh, to you out of Sacred Marriage, a book that we're going through now, by Gary Thomas. And it has to do with suffering and Abraham Lincoln and his wife and how it can be used to prepare us. And I've edited it. It's still a little bit lengthy, but bear with me here. I think you will enjoy this real-life illustration. I'm just going to jump in, and I have edited this, so I hope it doesn't sound too choppy, but I didn't want to take any more time than necessary. And so Mary Todd turns out to be uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife. Mary Todd was hardly the type of woman with whom one could enjoy a quiet evening. She was, in fact, a woman of intense impulses and tremendous temper, Though this, ironically enough, was some of her attraction for the future president. Lincoln called her the first aggressively brilliant feminine creature who had crossed his path. Uh, Shortly after the wedding, Mary became disconnected with their house, discontented with their house, telling Lincoln, everybody who is anything of quality in their society lived in a two-story house. And Lincoln tried the ruse that so many husbands have used, assenting to the idea, but not appropriating the funds. In other words, that would be nice, but we can't afford it. Uh, Rather than prolong the debate, as many wives of her day would have done, Mary simply waited until Lincoln left town on business for several weeks and then contracted with a carpenter to add another story. As the years passed, Lincoln learned patience in other ways. Mary's bouts of temper made retaining hired help extremely difficult. Lincoln responded by giving the girls an extra weekly dollar. After one particular forceful eruption between Mary and the maid, Lincoln quietly patted her on the girl on the head and said, Stay with her, Maria. Stay with her. So when a salesman called on the White House and was treated to Mary's fervid verbal assault, he marched right up to the Oval Office. And which you could do in that day, and proceeded to complain to President Lincoln about how the First Lady had treated him. And Lincoln listened calmly, 
then stood and gently said, you can endure for 15 minutes what I have endured for 15 years. (laughs) So he suffered numerous indignities uh, at the hand of his wife. uh, And it gets pretty bad. She threw coffee in his face. Uh, There there were just, it it was hard. There was a lot of hardship there. Um, They lost a son named Willie. And the grief, uh, Mary was grief-stricken. It really took a lot out of her. Uh, Sometimes she became hysteric, possibly even um, having to go into a mental hospital. I mean, it was it was kind of touch and go. Um, so there's a lot of grief there. And it's in the midst of this that Lincoln was called to give his, what we know of as the Gettysburg Address, this speech. Shortly before he left for Gettysburg, his son Tad became ill. This once again intensified Mary's hysterics. Uh, she was all the emotions of the previous son that had died resurfaced. Lincoln, with all of these distractions going on in his personal life, his marriage, his home, was, was um, barely able to scribble out a few notes for his speech to be delivered in Pennsylvania. So in this highly emotional moment, Lincoln could be forgiven for delivering his words with less than powered rhetoric. And basically, after he delivered the Gettysburg um, Address, uh, there, there was like hardly any fanfare, hardly any applause. He, he really felt like it felt um, flat. And uh, he leaned over, told a friend, it's a flat failure. The people are disappointed. The Gettysburg Address. But the words were true, genuine. They were moving, powerful. And as the newspapers recorded them without Lincoln's uh, monotone, I guess you might say, um, the nation was aspired as never before. The Gettysburg Address is one of the most famous speeches ever delivered on American soil. He shone brightest when his personal life was darkest. So the connection between um, Lincoln's marriage and his mission was not difficult to see. And Gary Thomas talks about how it prepared him, helped him, to be a great leader of our nation. It's important to see that not only did Lincoln's difficult marriage um, not deter him from achieving greatness, one might argue that it actually helped prepare for his greatness. His character was tested and refined on a daily basis so that when the true test came, he was able to stand strong. If, if Lincoln would have been obsessed with happiness, he wouldn't have mustered the strength to put up with Mary or to hold the nation together. He sensed a call to destiny, something that would, in his mind, supersede personal comfort and his obedience to that destiny-made world history. In virtually any poll on the presidents, Lincoln comes out near the top. Some historians have suggested that he may well have been our most successful president ever. Interestingly enough, a 1982 poll of historians put Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd, at the absolute bottom of first ladies. One of our greatest presidents was without question married to one of the most difficult first ladies. It's just an everyday example of life and things that 
you know, where do we, where do we take this? What direction are we going to go in this? What are we going to allow suffering and hardship to do to our hearts, to our minds, to our mission, to our goals, and to our desires? Scripture doesn't tell us to, to love the suffering and to seek it. it. It just explains that, yes, it's hard, it's real, but there's this, there's this bigger purpose that we just have to trust our sovereign God in it and through it in our pilgrimage. God means it for our good. And we should never all underestimate the, the, the pledged presence of God in our suffering. And sometimes what we want is an answer. I demand an answer to this. This is so hard, God. I just want an answer. But God's already pledged His presence to us. And so, we have the, the, so when we have the presence of God, we have all of His sufficiency. We have all of His, His being and all of the characteristics of God, the attributes of God. We have all of that with us with just His presence, and that's enough. We, we don't want to lose sight of that. And then lastly, I won't spend as much time on this last point, but that is suffering in the resurrection. You have suffering in glory, but suffering in the resurrection is very, very important. Verse 14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. It's all part of God's plan, if you will, for suffering. A very common passage that, that we read, often at funerals, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through 58, talks about when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting, and he goes on here. So, so death is even a form of suffering. Suffering can lead to the suffering of death and the loss there, and it's it's a reality. But Scripture says it's not the final word. It's, it's a part of the journey, but it's not the final word. It's a necessary, even a necessary, and a temporary part of the journey, but it is not by any means the final word. With the secularist plan, it is the final word. There's no victory over it. You just put it up with it. And with the New Age plan, you just, you just like, try to think it away or meditate it away. It's never really solved. You just, like, lose yourself into the greater force that's out there. The, the Bible, God deals with it. Like, he puts everything in its proper place. So I'll close with this. There are plans out there that can offer consolation. It'll be okay. Everything will turn out, out all right. There's a place for consolation. God's the God of all comfort. But, but the Christian plan all offers on top of that resurrection. It's not, God isn't just saying it's going to be okay. Well, what does that mean for God to console us? It means resurrection. It means that all of the loss is regained to a higher degree of glory. So it's not like it's forever gone. God restores, God renews, God resurrects. So everything that, that we, we thought that we lost, we only get back in a better way. That's what Paul means by you, you just can't 
compare things so you get you get them back. They're restored, but they're restored to their perfect state. So the things that were broken, the things that were lost, the things that were ruined, the things that were missed are restored, given back by the great gift giver, God. So you don't lose in the end. And what a way to put it, but that death or suffering, it wasn't just consoled, but it was swallowed up in what? In the victory. There's a victory that takes place. There's, there's definitive marks in the Christian plan where things are dealt with. And the things that were lost will come back in a more glorious state. So heaven, heaven looks at the cross and sees that all the, the terrible rebellion of mankind and the heinousness of sin was placed on the shoulders of Christ. But he defeated it. He took it down. And then with that, he lifts up his saints and the believers to the places in the heavenlies where everything is restored to a degree that we cannot even imagine. The Apostle Paul says it's so wonderful. Now, we're here and we often tell each other, you just can't even imagine how much it hurts. You cannot even imagine the suffering that I'm... If you only knew... I've heard people say many times, and I'm sure I've said it myself, if you just knew what I was going through, as if we can't understand each other's pain. I'm not so sure about that. I think pain is unique, but Scripture says there's no temptation that is not common to man. So we're all in the human experience. But we can't imagine what God has in store for us. We, haven't, we, ha- we, get, we get taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But, but we're not there yet. And when we get there, we will, rather than being blown away from suffering, we will be blown away by the glory of God if we had we not been prepared for it by this very thing. So suffering and glory go together. Suffering and resurrection go together. And that's the Christian perspective or the Christian plan or whatever you want to call it. Is that your plan this morning? Is that how you look at life? Is that how you put one foot in front of the other? Because we get it back. We get the Garden of Eden back, but only better. We get the cool walks in the evening with God back, but only better. We get our mental powers back. We get our bodies back. We get our, our cumin and our desires and our passions that are all good and God's will, we get them all back, but with more gusto, with more fervency. That is a hope restored to the ultimate degree. May God's word find its place in our hearts. May God's word find its place in our suffering and in our greatest place of need right now in our lives and calls us to long for His glory and holiness in our lives. May God bless the preaching of His Word.